One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. tuned in to Sci-Fi Fidelity, the podcast that brings you monthly science fiction television discussions and interviews from shows that deserve your attention. Remember to follow Den of Geek on Twitter and Facebook at Den of Geek US, and we are at Sci-Fi Fidelity. This is episode 5 for May of 2016, and my name is Mike. And I'm Dave, and in this edition of Sci-Fi Fidelity, we'll be talking about Orphan Black on BBC America and 12 Monkeys on Sci-Fi. This month's discussion topic is going to focus on the plethora of revivals and reboots that have or will grace the small screen in the months and years to come. And as a bonus, we'll throw in an extra bit of 12 Monkeys with our interview with Emily Hampshire, who plays Jennifer Goines on the show. It was great fun to talk to her. But yeah, we've got some great shows to talk about. It's interesting that we picked two of our favorite shows. Gosh, pretty much of all time, at least for me, these two are way up there. Oh, yeah, they definitely make the short list. But before we get into it, for those who need to avoid spoilers by skipping certain segments, here are the time codes for today's topics. Orphan Black. 140. 12 Monkeys. 2418. Interview Segment. 4332. Reboots and Revivals. 5709. All right, so if you're here... You are an Orphan Black fan. You're you're in the clone club, right, Dave? <laughs> you are indeed. Now, you know, uh, obviously Wayne and I have been discussing Dark Angel on Sci-Fi TV Rewatch, and there are some issues with clones in that show as well. And the other night in our discussion, I, I said to Wayne, I said, you know, I feel like it's a little too Orphan Black for me. And then I thought, oh, wait a minute. This is like 12, <laughs> 13 years before Orphan Black. But I, I, I think more to the point... Orphan Black has really worked its way into, I don't know if it's fair to say, the lexicon of sci-fi television, but you know, I, I think most people are aware of the show. And it's really carved out its own niche because it really is unique. In fact, it is distinguished in my household as being one of the only sci-fi shows that both my wife and I enjoy. So it really has crossed some barriers for those who don't watch sci-fi and gained huge critical acclaim. And you, you almost want her to win an award or two. She hasn't gotten there yet. But Tatiana Maslany, who plays several of the clones, or several of the clones, all of the female clones, has really just done a wonderful job of creating distinct characters. I mean, I, I don't even realize I'm looking at the same person anymore. Right. And I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I think we both agree that, it, that it's really been a travesty that she has not won an Emmy yet. Yeah, totally. I mean... It's been a scramble each year, and we keep thinking it's going to be, this is going to be it. This is where Tatiana really gets recognition for what she's done here. Because acting ability aside, of course, she's great at that. But just being able to create distinct characters and different accents, I've never seen anyone do it to this degree. Yeah. I, I mean, really, they give Academy Awards to people that play a character with an accent. One accent. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well. 
let's just do a little bit of background real quickly. Orphan Black appears Thursdays on BBC America. You already mentioned Tatiana Maslany, who pretty much takes care of half the cast. Yeah. Jordan Gavaris as her foster brother, Felix. Maria Doyle Kennedy as Mrs. S, a.k.a. Siobhan. And then it, it seems as if Donnie Hendricks, played by Christian Brune, has more of a front and center appearance this season. Yeah, he has. And I'm glad of it because he really adds a lot to the comedic dynamic that has been one of the clones, Allison. Her character has always been outside of the conspiracy storyline and providing quite a bit of levity to the cast and to the story. And, you know, and I'm sure everybody has their favorite clone. I mean, how could you not? But I I think you'd be hard pressed to find people that really don't like Allison Hendricks. Right. I would say probably my favorite is Helena. Wow, really? Yeah, I just love that character because there's just so many little nuances to her. But who's your favorite? Well, you know, I still bond, I think, most with Sarah. And and I don't know if it's just that she's so badass. And, and again, not that the others aren't. I, I mean, truth be told, Allison's running a close second. But <laughs> yeah. I, I would say still Sarah with, with Allison a close second. Yeah, and there's plenty to choose from, and it seems like every season they add at least one more. Yeah, and and speaking of meeting one more clone, we've been introduced to the original, Kendall Malone, who turns out to be the mother of Siobhan, Mrs. S. Yeah, the original for both the male and female lines of clones, which obviously uh, you and I have talked about that the caster line, which is the male line of clones in this show. Yeah. Not quite as impressive, but <laughs> in, in terms of story and also the different personalities haven't been quite as distinct. But yeah, this original starting out in season four has really put a, a new twist on the danger that they're in and having to avoid anyone being able to take advantage of the knowledge that they now have. Right. And, you know, you mentioned danger and obviously they are. And it gets to the point where a show like this, the characters are in constant danger and you just yearn for that episode where everybody, including the audience, could just lie back and take a breath. I don't know when we're going to get that, but. Well, there was that one moment where they had the dance party. I don't remember if that was season two or three, but even then Cosima was ailing at that party, I believe. So it wasn't a total victory, but Yeah, they don't have a whole lot of times when all of them get to kind of just chill for a bit. Yeah. Well, listen, season four returned on April 14th, 2016, episode 401, The Collapse of Nature. And what was so mind bending about this is that we're immediately thrown into the past and we understand after a few minutes that what we're seeing is the backstory of Detective Beth Childs. Here to four, all we'd seen her do is jump in front of a train. Exactly. And you could be forgiven for thinking it was Sarah because they but definitely look the most alike. Beth has a little bit straighter hair than Sarah. And of course, the accent is American versus British. But what a great way to start season four, especially since there's such a gap between seasons with only 10 episodes per season that you can forget what's been going on. And, and this is a nice refresher here in season four. Right. And I I think now that we've been introduced to Beth Childs on a much deeper level, I mean, she's such an engaging character. And it's so heartbreaking when you see how torn up emotionally she's become over this. 
And she really had no one to confide in. Just really a fascinating episode. And really, they focused on her almost the entire 44 minutes. I did wonder, even back in season one, but certainly here in season four, why didn't Beth confide more in Allison and Cosima? Was she just trying to protect them and keep them from getting embroiled in what she had discovered? Well, that's what I think. But we also see that she's in contact with a clone that we meet for the first time, MK. Right. And that the two of them are already on to the Neolutionist implant story, which is a big part of season four to this point. And I think certainly, you know, one of the things that they've done well here is kind of simplify things with two plot lines, the mouth implants. And then, of course, Helena is pregnant with twins. Yeah, well, that's definitely a fun storyline to follow. You've got the resurgence of Allison and Donnie there one time when they were natural born killers <laughs> as they took out Dr. Leakey and revisiting that has been really fun. That goes along with the cheek implant storyline. But but you mentioned the, you know, the stories kind of overlapping. One of the things we'd have to consider is would Beth have survived had she shared, which you kind of alluded to a minute ago. But we also learn that Dyad is, of course, no longer running the LIDA program. But we've got this organization topside, which we don't know a whole lot about other than that it seems to be the parent company of Dyad. Right. And I hope we get more of that in season four. Clearly, they are very wealthy, influential people that are trying to steer the course of humanity in a very eugenics kind of way. (laughs) I mean, maybe that's a little bit too strong. But they definitely are not just trying to influence politics. They're trying to influence the path of evolution and humanity. And Dyad is just a very small part of that. Right. And in their minds, it seems to be an improvement for the better. They think they know best. Right. Now, the second episode, Transgressive Border Crossing, focused more on the relationship between MK and Beth. And you mentioned that she didn't share that knowledge with Allison and Cosima. But well, we also see Sarah and Art looking into Beth's story. And then, of course, we're introduced to Helena having twins. Uh, once we get into the third episode, Stigmata of Progress, we're reintroduced to Rachel, who is recovering from that eye injury she suffered. Yeah, and I like this plot line, too. This is something where she's being kept prisoner, and they've introduced Charlotte, who is the younger version of the Lita clone. But... That's a different plot line, too, because clearly something is being put into place for Rachel because she has fallen from the height of power under Dr. Leakey. Right. And of course, Susan Duncan is alive. Right. That was a big reveal. Right. Now, I I also believe she said that Charlotte was cloned from Rachel. Yeah, that was an interesting thing that came out of episode three. Right. Now, the other interesting thing that comes out of episode three is Felix's search for his biological family, and he finds a sister. Yeah, what a surprise, because he has been so selfless throughout the first three seasons, always giving to the cause, always contributing wherever he can, and never taking time out for himself. And now he has clearly been seen to be on the outside more and more. And who can blame him for wanting to get his own mission going. I I really like this plot. Yeah, I do too. And his feeling as if his wishes and desires always come second and and that Sarah 
just can't understand that. And again, yeah, it's such an interesting dynamic. She's going to have to learn to deal with it. I, I keep thinking that Felix is going to be some secret, bigger part of this whole conspiracy. But it may just turn out that he has his own thing. He just contributes to it. And I kind of like that they've given him something that's all his own. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it would be a little too contrived if this new sister that he's met, and boy, is she a, a trip. <laughs> She's a piece of work. Uh, if she turns out to be some sort of a deep cover spy, I, I think that would be a little too much. I agree. <laughs> All right. And then the fourth episode from instinct to rational control starts to tie some of these plot lines together. So, I mean, they're really off to a good start because what we see is that Susan Duncan, who, you know, apparently survived that fire and, and I'm sure it was staged, you know, she looks no worse for wear, but she's searching for the original who's needed to cure, or at least she thinks is needed to cure the medical issues that are facing the clones. And, and of course, we know about Cosima's issues, and it seems as if Charlotte is suffering the same fate. Right. And who knows? Maybe it also would cure the tweakiness that the caster clones are going through. Yeah. Uh, we learn that she is apparently now Neolution. We don't know whether she's always been Neolution, what her connection to Leaky was, if if any. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, we start to get some more clarity. Uh, individuals are given the chance to create, improve themselves that he calls it an individual evolutionary choice. So it's interesting, but it just seems like a lot of wackos to me. Yeah, it always has, actually. So you have to think whether or not the whole clone project was put into place for something like that. But what is going to be the true meaning that they get out of it through the quest that Sarah and her sisters have. Right. Now, we're also introduced to another character, Diz, who is this contact that Sarah, I'm not sure how she ends up finding him. Obviously, he's in contact with MK. Uh-huh. But she tells him that there are 22 clones, nine still living. So I'm trying to do a head count here, and I come up with Rachel, Sarah, Allison, Cosima, MK, Tony, Crystal, Nikki, who I guess is still alive, and Charlotte, I assume, is one of the nine. Uh, we've got two caster clones, Ira and Mark. So, you know, the, the number that she's throwing out there of nine still living, I'm not sure exactly which nine she's referring to. I mean, we've got most of them. So, you know, maybe that's something that, that will make itself clearer as we move forward. And, of course, the fact that they say five unknown leaves it open for them to bring in more if they if they get more seasons and open up more storylines. Yeah. Now, we've kind of gone to this uh, uh, style of things we like. So there's a lot, obviously, to like about Orphan Black. To me, it's always great to see Helena healing emotionally now that she's become part of the clone family and the fact that she's living with Allison and Donnie while waiting to deliver her identical twins is just a treat. And I did say identical twins, which takes us back to the fact that she and Sarah are identical twins born of the same mother. And that they appear to be the only ones not afflicted by the infertility that was either there by design or certainly could be affected by the flaw that everyone is seeking to cure. 
Yeah. Now, you mentioned the neolutionist cheek implants, and obviously that's a new twist to this sinister experiment that we've been following. Apparently, they've been implanting them into unsuspecting civilians. Of course, it's of their own free volition, but we wonder how it is that Sarah has one. And is it just coincidence? Yes. Because, you know, she had kind of a rough and tumble life with Felix before all this got started. Right. So did she just get this in a drunken stupor sometime? Yeah. Or during one of her drug deals gone wrong or something like that. Yeah. Right. Now, I mentioned MK, Mika, uh, a recluse clone who communicates via three-minute video conference calls, which at first seem a little crazy. But then I I think she really has the right idea that you have to be ultra careful You never know who's listening and who's watching. And of course, the great choice of a dolly, the the sheep (laughs) mask that refers to their cloneness. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Now, we mentioned Felix tracking down his biological family, you know, because he's beginning, I think, to feel like an outsider once they realize that Mrs. S is actually related to Sarah, that it's understandable that he feels the way he does. So he meets Adele. His biological sister, they share the same father who was having an affair. Well, I don't know about you, Mike, but I I thought Felix could party, but no, no. (laughs) Maybe that's where it comes from, that side of the family. (laughs) Maybe. Now, we're reintroduced to Ferdinand, and he's obviously the cleaner. Yeah, (laughs) good way to put it. Exactly. Well, that's what they call it, right? I think that's in all the Hitman movies, right? The cleaner. Exactly. Takes him out, gets rid of the body, cleans up the blood, whatever. (laughs) Is he in love with Rachel? Is that what they're leading us to believe? That that does seem to be in the mix, yes. (laughs) So I, I don't know. I mean, he did kill six clones as Topside's cleaner. So I I do find that interesting, but I'm convinced that's where we're headed. That's his motivation at this point. And of course it is interesting to see the fact that they're working together. And, and of course, Sarah admits, you know, sometimes you have to work with people you don't want to. Yeah. Well, and that's true. And that's been true even with people who were monitors and then got converted somehow. I mean, geez, Delphine, Donnie, even, A lot of them had to kind of switch tack. So it's very believable to start working with your enemies in some cases. Yeah. Now, I mean, we still have some things to talk about that we like, but uh, one of the things that I have a little bit of a problem with, you know, I I knew we couldn't expect Sarah to stay in Iceland forever, (laughs) but that whole, oh, here we go again, pack your bags. Everybody's got their emergency bag ready to go. Let's burn the place. We can't leave any evidence. But what I did like was that that scene of burning monkey as S sets (laughs) the cabin ablaze, because I think it's really symbolic that, of course, here is a child that has had to grow up way too soon. And I, I guess I feel like this is symbolic of her completely leaving her childhood behind. Well, I'm glad they brought Kira into the mix as well, because she was such a prominent mystery at the end of season one and it kind of fell by the wayside. Why is she the way she is? Why does she seem to sense things? Cause we've really been taking the scientific angle this whole time, but there almost seems to be something mystical about Kira. Oh, oh no question. And it comes out loud and clear. And I, and I think it's easy to overlook when they're getting ready 
to leave Iceland, right? They get word and they're, and they're a little dubious about it. And then you see Kira look out the window, they're coming. Yeah. Now, is it that she could see the lights or is it something like, as you just alluded to, that she's just sensed? Yeah. There's always been something a little bit different about her. And is that part of the neolutionist goal that they're working towards something like Kira? That's what I think. Yeah. Some good lines in the first four episodes, but I think my favorite is when they reach the safe house, which uh, is a comic book store. Cosima takes one look. Secret lab under a comic book shop. What more could a girl want? <laughs> Just classic. Now, speaking of Cosima, her lab partner, Scott, is still on board. Yeah, I like him. He's a good I character. do like him. <laughs> I, I, he's really starting to grow on me. But I also like that scene where Kendall, the original, asks him to keep a secret the fact that she has leukemia and as she said i don't want them to know i don't want them to pity me and i mean she's got this gruff personality this gruff exterior she's really kind of unlikable but that one scene really you know kind of softens you i think a bit to her yeah and you wonder how it's going to play out over the course of the season because it's definitely going to be important and then of course we see that scene with beth with all the blood all over her and I don't know that we know who she killed. Not yet, but it's early in the season yet. We're right at the halfway mark almost. It is. And, and then she tells MK, watch the others for me. So they, they set in motion so many of these potential plot lines. And, you know, a lot of shows you wonder, okay, how are they going to keep going in season five? Not so with Orphan Black. Yeah, I actually had that worry more so in season three, but season four has come racing out of the gate with some great storylines. So I, I definitely had my confidence renewed. Right. And then finally, you know, Cosima says she's figured out what the bots do, something to do with gene editing, changing DNA. That's pretty much what she leaves us with. And, and assume in episode five, we'll expand on that a little bit. But you want to talk about some of the problems we have? Sure. Well, the Brightborn treatment. I mean, is it too much or does it just simply fit in with the intricately woven mythos that we've been exposed to in the past four seasons? I mean, okay, they're going to a fertility clinic. Great. Okay, so now it's like this subset of the fertility clinic. I, I don't know. Maybe a bit too much. Oh, okay, yeah. And I do sometimes worry when they introduce new clones. I really didn't care for Tony, for example. I'm not sure he was a fan favorite in general. But MK has been a really good addition and a different enough accent too to make her distinct and very different type of personality than we're used to with a Tatiana Maslany uh, clone. But I think we both felt that the revenge fantasy that she's got is a little bit too cut and dried because, you know, she would normally be a lot smarter than that. And it seems to be like a weakness that is unlike her. Yeah, no question. Even as little as we know of her. <laughs> yeah. Now, this next one, I'm not sure you're going to get the reference, but I think a lot of our listeners will. You know, Kira keeps asking about Cal, her father. Why don't they just tell her? He's in Westeros. He, he, he's not going to be around for a while. <laughs> is that actor in Game of Thrones? Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, it really bugs me that Kira never gets to be around other children. I, I know that's a little thing, and, and it, it it is what it is. And, and I guess... To a large extent, probably a lot of the clones, you know, had the same fate. Not Sarah, of course, but because she was raised with uh, Felix and we presume other children. But that bugs me a little bit. 
You know what bugged me a little bit is just in episode three, I believe it was, when Sarah went to that dental clinic to find out more about this little worm in her cheek. Yeah. She didn't know it at the time, but the nurse just goes with, oh, Beth, you haven't been here in a while. It's like, <laughs> would she really just go right into that, not having heard anything about Beth having died, or would she just not be informed? You would think if she was in the circle of people who knew about this thing, that she would also know about Beth having died. Yeah, I mean, and not to mention that it's a police detective that threw herself in front of a moving train. So the news value alone of that, you would think she would have heard about it. Yeah, Sarah saw it on the news after the fact. So why wouldn't the nurse? But very minor things, like I said, these are individual plot points, not problems that cover the scope of the show. Yeah, I think we kind of had to try to find some problems. (laughs) Well, and then that's also true for our next topic, (laughs) 12 Monkeys, which is definitely one of my favorite shows in a long time. So if you're just joining us at this part of the podcast... We're talking about the first three episodes of 12 Monkeys. As we record this, actually, the fourth episode is getting ready to air. But 12 Monkeys airs on Mondays, which is a switch from season one. It's in its second season. Mondays have not been very kind to it, unfortunately. (laughs) But it is definitely almost better. I didn't think it was possible to get better from season one. But it's just one stellar episode after the other this season. Yeah, and I just got to say, I'm so glad that you and Corey have your podcast to make sense of this show for me, which I love. It's just, it's just mind bending. And then of course the uh, reviews that you do for den of geek really help clarify things for me. And, uh, you know, and and that's, I guess the problem with time travel and you and I talked about this uh, the other day, continuum had its own set of time travel issues and, and they certainly were complex, but nothing compared to 12 monkeys. Yeah, they almost go out of their way to make it complex, which may lose some audience. You know, who knows? Maybe people just don't want to stick around for that kind of mind-melting complexity. But I really love it, and a lot of other sci-fi fans love it. It's got some great cast members that have really gelled. Everybody's a likable character, even the evil ones. (laughs) We've got Amanda Shul playing Dr. Cassandra Rayleigh, Aaron Stanford from Nikita. He plays James Cole. And Emily Hampshire does a great turn as the female version of the Brad Pitt role from the movie. Jennifer Goines is her name in this one. And then Kirk Acevedo, of those of you who enjoyed Fringe, he does a great job. Some really, really top-notch acting from him as Jose Ramsey, especially in season two. And then one of my favorite characters is Dr. Jones, who's played with the wonderful German accent by Barbara Sokova. Yeah, now you mentioned Kirk Acevedo, and and I think you've known for a while. I I don't really care for the actor. It just seems like his characters are always yelling. Yeah. But I don't even know what happened. Thinking about doing this podcast tonight, I I thought, i got to mention to Mike that I like him. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, man, he has done such a great job. He had some really well-written scenes. So, you know, obviously the writers have given him some great material, but boy, does he sell it. I mean, he really does. So, (laughs) but uh, this one returned also in April. So Orphan Black and 12 Monkeys were pretty much in the same week. This one came back on April 18th, the year of the monkey, which turned everything on its head by introducing the idea that history could be changed. And they did actually affect change by the time they got around to the second episode called Primary. 
and they're visiting various time periods. We've seen the 1940s so far. They've said that we're also going to be seeing other decades, so the time machine is much farther reaching than it used to be, possibly because of the history-changing elements that have been introduced. The time machine seems to have more power. But this show, for those people who don't know, is based on a movie, a Terry Gilliam film, which was award-winning, and we are going to be talking about reboots and revivals later, and 12 Monkeys does definitely fall in that category, but it's one of these rare cases where the TV show has not only created its own identity, separate from the movie, but it's also, in some ways, become better because of the different way that it treats its material even though the movie won all kinds of awards. Uh, I'd have to take exception with that. I think it's better in all ways. <laughs> Seriously, I tried watching the movie a couple months ago. Uh, see, I love that movie. <laughs> uh, I, I couldn't get through it. You know, I, I, just, I, I guess I have such a connection to the television show now. But they did some interesting changes that I want to highlight to start off with. Dr. Catherine Rayleigh from the movie becomes Cassandra here, which is a nice little way to fit in a mythological reference to the princess of Troy who could see the future, but was cursed with no one believing her prophecies, which certainly was likely the case during the year that she spent after Cole first made his appearance in season one. She had a year to wait for him to show up again, and no one would believe that she had seen this guy disappear right in front of her face. And one thing that you think couldn't have changed because Brad Pitt did win an Oscar for his portrayal of Jeffrey Goins in the movie has been Jennifer Goins uh, changing it to a female, first of all. But the fact that in the movie, the Army of the Twelve Monkeys was a complete red herring, as was Jeffrey Goins. Whereas in the TV show, she's a very pivotal character, as we're finding out in season two, especially. But the Army of the Twelve Monkeys also is no longer a red herring. It actually is important to the story, which you think would completely mess it up, but it doesn't. (laughs) But one thing is for sure, Dave, and that is that this show definitely takes its time travel seriously because like I mentioned in the Terry Gilliam film, it proved time and time again that you cannot change history. And season one seemed to be in line with that for a while. But then in season two, to introduce the possibility that some things can change history. And as a result, James Cole has kind of taken a different approach to how he's going to treat things. He's not going to just try and shoot somebody to prevent the virus from being released. Now he's going to try and save people because that seems to be the only thing that can change history. Yeah. I mean, we kind of have a role reversal there because initially he would have shot the person. Yeah. Right now it's Cassie that'll shoot him. Yeah. And that's been a problem for some fans. The fact that Cassie has had such a drastic personality change in the eight months that they had to repair the time machine in the, in the premiere for season two. But Cassie just cannot take the fact that Cole has not had to make the kind of sacrifices that she's made. And that's why she's acting so mean towards him. Now, is this one of these situations where they try to go in and affect change and time pushes back? Yeah, in a way it seems like that's true, but it doesn't actually do it the same way that it did in eleven twenty two sixty three. Okay. <laughs> it didn't that doesn't actually work against them. It's just that they do things that they think are different and in actuality in history, those actions were already recorded. So things that you try to change actually end up being already part of history that you just weren't aware of. So you were 
part of what you thought. In fact, some cases, they end up causing the exact thing that they're trying to prevent. But one of the things that still is puzzling me is they've destroyed the virus Mm -hmm. in season two. Now what? Yeah, it seems to be a much bigger picture. And that's what's great about season two. The picture keeps zooming out where Ramsey ends up working with the 12 monkeys in season one who clearly have a purpose for releasing the virus that we can't see because we don't know why they would want such a thing. I mean, we do hear mentions that we need to burn everything down and start over, but we don't know why they think that. Right. Especially since it's being revealed as the course of season two unfolds that the messengers are trying to get rid of time altogether in a form of immortality or being able to live forever. So I don't know how the virus fits into that or whether or not the virus is just incidental to getting the time machine made that they need in order to go around and kill all these primaries that comprise the consciousness of time. So it seems like the virus is something that motivates the time machine to be created or to be implemented anyway in the post-apocalyptic future. So I don't know. It's it's very complicated. What is their goal and why, how does the virus fit into it? But they're definitely steering away from that, like you said, and it's becoming a bigger picture than even the virus seemed to entail. Okay. So are the messengers connected to the army of the 12 monkeys? Yes, indeed. On both ends, it seems, because the army of the 12 monkeys begat the 12 babies that became the messengers in the future. But then they went back in time and seemed to found the army of the 12 monkeys. Okay. Now we also hear about the witness. What do we know? Yeah. Now that's interesting because the witness was a big key feature in season one. And we have seen neither hide nor hair of him or her in season two. Now, lastly, we're introduced to the daughters. Is that Jennifer Goins in the future that Mm -hmm. has found her purpose Yes, indeed. That was definitely a big part of the opening of season two, where Cole set her on a completely different path as they went farther and into the past, such that they were no longer in Jennifer's lifespan. So now her character is pretty much hanging out in 2044 with Jones, and she has founded this group of badass women called the Daughters, again, whose purpose we don't exactly know and how much they've been brought in on. It's almost like a counterpoint to the Army of the Twelve Monkeys. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Yeah. 
Well, that's cool. I mean, I love the fact that they've introduced all of these characters, these groups, and that their motivations, their purpose is still kind of cloudy. Uh, I like it. Yep. And there's some elements of time travel for everyone. If If you like that kind of thing, they've had moments where they went slightly back in time and Cole and his earlier self were coexisting. He went back to a timeline that had slightly changed in season one where he had to fix it uh, to get back on, on track. And so every little different scenario that you can imagine that time travel brings up has been explored. So it's definitely something that has been really used to its full purpose. But the one thing that I want to mention that is going to come into the things we like and the things that maybe could be improved (laughs) is the time travel injections. These are very key to allowing our time travelers to change history and then know that they've changed history because they remember how it used to be, even though maybe sometimes those around them do not. Right. We see that one scene where we know that time is being changed and we see Jones in the compound and you see all these figures around her that, and we assume that that's time changing history changing and we even see her bump into one guy i think at one point yeah and that's been a great dynamic the slight change in history so that the virus was released a few years later gives them a great amount of hope which has been a very key piece for season two but it also shows that there's more to it than just this causality that the science that jones is beholden to because the change should have been exponential and yet they're on the same track with some of the same people. The one person who is added to the mix that I have just been enjoying even more than I thought I would is this love interest for Jones who remembers her from his timeline. She has no idea who he is and is played by Michael Hogan from Battlestar Galactica, who was Colonel Ty in that show has just been doing a great job with very few lines, not, not in very many scenes, but when he is, he kills it. <laughs> yeah, right. She mentions that, well, you know, I know you're a, a, a scientist and you're key to the project, but uh, other than that, I don't remember you. Eh, that's going to make it a little weird when we go to bed tonight. <laughs> exactly. And if I could share one line from the episode that's airing tonight, since I have seen it ahead of time, he turns to her and he just goes, why are you being such an asshole? <laughs> so I can't wait for people to enjoy that. That's but... <laughs> so Colonel Ty. <laughs> But there's a lot of things that we like about this show, of course. And one of them is that all the characters have flaws, even the people that we like. Cole, for example, he never plans anything. Ramsey is blinded by trying to save his son, even though it kills 7 billion people for him to work with the the Army of the Twelve Monkeys. And even Jones, I don't think anyone knows, besides us in the audience, that she killed in order to prevent knowledge being put out there that there was a cure in the works and they could have just moved forward from their post-apocalypse into a a brighter time where the plague could have gotten rid of rather than trying to change history. Was it something to do with her daughter? Yeah. Just because she wants to resurrect Hannah, her daughter, she has hidden this cure or this potential cure from everyone. I don't think there's a single person inside the show that knows that we know it. But it's just been kind of glossed over. So I love that. Every character has something wrong with them. Yeah. The rise of the anti hero. 
Exactly. Yeah. And even the villains, like Deacon, who's a, who's a sociopath, he's now coming on the flip side and helping out the team a little bit, even though the dynamic has created a little friction, <laughs> but still. Well, again, what a great character and, and not unlike what's going on in uh, Orphan Black, right? W- with Ferdinand. Oh, yeah. Always switching up the villains and the heroes and you never know exactly what their motivation is going to be and whether or not it'll be in line with the protagonist. Right. And we see that vulnerable side of him in one of these episodes, you know, when Ramsey, he's imprisoned and of course Deacon's coming in to torture him to get information out of him. And then Ramsey turns it around and tells him about when he was traveling in time, he went to see Deacon as a child and saw his father beating his mother near death. And, and oh, by the way, I'm the one that called the cops and saved your mother's life. Yeah, that was definitely one of my favorite scenes of the series, really, just from the acting standpoint and how great it was. Todd Stashwick playing Deacon, even just with his expressions and how hurt he was by what uh, Ramsey was saying to him. So, yeah, some great stuff there. The only character, in fact, that I didn't care for in this series was Noah Bean's character, Aaron, but his character apparently died in season one. So (laughs) although if you ask some fans, some people think he's still alive and in fact might even be the witness, but I was kind of glad to get rid of him. Yeah. I was going to say, I hope not. (laughs) All right. Well, you know, one of, one of the things that certainly been a popular topic of discussion in virtually all of genre television is the role of the cast and the role of the showrunner in social media. Yeah. And in this case, it actually works to their advantage. It's a delicate thing. Might have to be a topic on a future sci-fi fidelity discussion topic, but Terry Metalis, the showrunner is extremely involved in the social media, both on Facebook and Twitter is actually part of and an active participant in the Facebook group that was started by just a fan of the show. So, I just love that they do everything they can. And boy, no one can accuse this cast of not doing everything they can to keep this show on the air, despite some poor ratings. They've done press. They've done appearances on other shows. They closed the NASDAQ at one point, showed up in Times Square on the big screen. But I mean, they're doing everything they can to engage with their audience. And I love that. And in fact, Terry Metalis, I mentioned how he's planted some back to the future Easter eggs, such as the clock in the Emerson hotel lobby that set at 10 Oh four, the same time that the clock tower stopped in back to the future and even named one of his FBI agents after Bob Gale, the writer of back to the future, but even has included these guest stars, including Eric Knudsen from continuum, who he himself is a time traveler, Alex Sadler on that show. So his geek cred is very high. <laughs> yeah, but until they get Roger Cross, I'm not sure we can say they've arrived. <laughs> and I just love that they they trust their audience not to get lost. The conversation goes on beyond the show, and people just really love that. If you need a little bit more explanation, that's what podcasts and uh, rewatches are for. Right, so. and, and I got to tell you, you know, as, as I mentioned at the top of this discussion, I mean, I do leave the end of the episode confused but i love then going right online either finding your podcast finding your review uh reviews on av club wherever and and i just really love reading these things that help me wrap my head around what it is i've just seen yeah 
And in fact, I guess if we were going to deal with problems in the show, I really could only highlight two things that are only potential problems, but haven't actually become problems yet. One of them is that the science is starting to take a back seat in the show and mysticism is starting to creep in a little bit of metaphysics rather than physics, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and whether or not fans will like that and whether or not it will still be believable. I think it will, but it is something that makes me wonder how it will be received. And the other thing that I think might be a problem is you mentioned who's the witness and that hasn't really been in the mix at all so far in season two. Now, granted there've only been three episodes, but this phenomenon of things that could be drawn out too long. uh, I think we mentioned that during orphan black as well. How long can we deal with certain things being unknown? Yes. Right now, granted, it's not a primary storyline. So right now they're okay. Yes. I like how you use the word primary in that sense. (laughs) But yeah, so there are a lot of character shifts that also were a little bit hinky for me, especially with Cassie. Was it too great a change? Maybe, but I think that'll all be ironed out. And I can't say enough good things about 12 Monkeys overall. And I would concur. And in fact, we'll go ahead and let one of the cast members speak for us in that regard, because I was very honored to speak to Emily Hampshire, who plays Jennifer Goins on the show. Now, Dave, you had to miss this one just from work schedules not quite working out. Yes. So this will just be me talking to Emily. But let me just introduce her. She's made huge contributions to the Canadian television industry, starting back when she won a Gemini Award for her role in the ensemble show Made in Canada. She's recently won acclaim for both of her current roles, winning a Golden Maple Leaf Award, both for playing Stevie Budd on Schitt's Creek, which I know some of our listeners and some of the fans of 12 Monkeys know about. And we talk a little bit about that in the interview. But she also won a Golden Maple Leaf for Jennifer Goines in 12 Monkeys. So let's take a listen to the discussion that I had with her just last week. Hello, Emily. Yes. Thank you very much for joining me. I know you have a very busy schedule. So to lead us off here, you know, Jennifer's kind of a crazy personality. So what, as an actress, what is the most challenging aspect of playing such a fractured personality? You know, I think the most challenging thing, I think, is just energy-wise. Like, I, I always notice at the end of a shooting day of playing Jennifer, I am exhausted. And sometimes, like... <laughs> sometimes like emotionally exhausted, like somebody on the weekend or something will say like the littlest thing to me and I'll just like start crying. Um, <laughs> but I think, I think just it's physically exhausting. It's, it's kind of is an energy level that I'm not normally at. So I don't notice it when I'm shooting because it's like that adrenaline you get, or like when you're a kid and you play outside all day, like I'm having an amazing time doing it, but it's after when everything's kind of over that you take a breath and realize like, oof, I am spent. So that, and, and I think I'm sure everybody feels this on the show too, is just the, the hours we do because it is such an ambitious project for, I mean, I think the quality of it is amazing. And we obviously, we don't have millions and millions of, dollars to do it so we have to do it fast and everybody our crew and everybody works like overtime to get that amazing results but the 
crazy stuff about Jennifer is stuff I love to do because it's like playing. And I think maybe that's why I feel exhausted because I am an adult, so I'm not used to playing all day. <laughs> and Jennifer is kind of like a kid a lot of the time. Her brain is like firing on so many levels. So it's both a joy and um, an exhausting. <laughs> so you're saying it's not a uh, Stevie Bud level of energy. <laughs> oh, no. I always say Stevie playing Schitt's Creek is the easiest job in the world and the best <laughs> job. I mean, and I get why Stevie loved her job. Like, she just sits behind the desk and plays Sudoku <laughs> and um, it's interesting because there's something going on, like I'm shooting that right now and we're doing this storyline, which I can't say anything about, but it is in that vein. It's really made me realize that Stevie actually likes how non-challenging her job is. <laughs> So no, it's definitely, it's the polar opposite. And I feel really lucky that I have Stevie to kind of warm up super, super lazily and slowly into playing Jennifer. That's right. Well, Jennifer is going to be seen in a different light this season, obviously. Presumably, we won't be seeing her in the 40s and the other decades like we will our time travelers, but we will be seeing a lot more older Jennifer So how did you have to alter your performance to play this leader of women who's perhaps wiser and more sure of herself? That was actually a big challenge for me at the beginning um, because, you know, we'd established this younger Jennifer. And then the first time I did, it's like four hours of makeup, which you could not pay me enough to cling on. Um, (laughs) It is not the funnest thing in the world, but when... I saw myself for the first time, they do such a good job that I just immediately felt older and felt, it's a weird thing. I think everybody should actually try this at home because it does a (laughs) really good thing for you. It, A, made me feel really good about the way I look now. (laughs) Like when I take (laughs) off makeup, I'm like, oof, I'm hot. (laughs) It's like going through your iPhone, you know, when you go through like, last year's photos and you didn't think you look good then, but now you're like, Oof, I wish I could have go back to then. Um, but then um, also though, it just gave me this confidence, this, I didn't give a shit about what people thought of me. And I felt myself kind of sit into that as Jennifer. Um, so everything kind of slowed down. And I think old Jennifer does a lot more, watching and listening than young Jennifer does of talking and trying to be heard all the time. I think old Jennifer has, well, lived a longer time. And it's a really interesting journey. And I think this season we discover how young, crazy Jennifer becomes this old, wiser woman and leader of this army of badass women. Well, speaking of the daughters, uh, they appear to have plenty of information about the time travel aspect of things themselves. So are we going to learn more about the backstory of the group or, and maybe even get a few characters out of the daughter's recurring roles, guest roles? I can't give you any specifics, but yes. <laughs> um, yeah, And I think with this season, with all the characters, we do delve into people's backstory. And with the daughters, especially... Um, Oh, God, I wish I could tell you this. It's a, it's an amazing kind of 
it's not a twist. It's like it's so satisfying because it links up everything that you never would have imagined. And then you're like, oh, my God, Jennifer. <laughs> um, I, it's so hard talking about this show because there's so many spoilers. But, yes, we will find out a lot more about the daughters and some in particular. Cool. <laughs> I yeah, can't that's, spoilers. Sorry. That's good enough. I just wanted to know if we would get characters out of there, but that's cool. <laughs> but in terms of Jennifer, have the writers brought you in on a couple of things that I've been wondering personally, such as why did she get off the plane and why is she no longer in charge of Markridge? <laughs> yeah, you know, I asked about that too because I really wanted to know when we start season two, it's a very different Jennifer from the girl who's on the plane. And so I had questions about that, but I, and I had to a bit of it make up in my head what that journey had been. Um, and then I checked it out with uh, our creator, Terry Metalis. It's interesting. There's a, there's a webisode that's out now that's called like the, the pre-apocalypse or, or no, pre, pre-season two something. And that gives a little bit of a window into maybe what Jennifer was doing. I mean, it's, it's a bit funny, but I think Jennifer in in taking over Markridge and stuff, it's one of those, again, roles she plays. Like, a lot of the time she takes on these roles and plays them like it's a movie and then <laughs> finds herself actually in the situation and realizes she can't necessarily handle it. And I think on the plane, she had gotten manipulated by Olivia and talked into that this was her purpose to spread this virus. And I think the reality of the situation became a lot different when she found herself alone. Like season one, she's on the plane about to go spread this virus, all feels all powerful, but then she's alone essentially. And Jennifer going from the mental institution, the minute she gets out of there, she's always looking to latch on to something. And I think she's always trying to find a family in a way. And so uh, I always pictured her, you know, going to the first stop where to spread the virus. And then she just kind of starts wandering around a bit and seeing people in the world and getting lost in her head a bit and um and i think she just like kind of spiraled downward because there is something in her that knows this isn't necessarily the right thing to do but i think she's looking for a purpose and that's when cole finds her and it's just so amazing that cole would actually be the one to stop her i think she's like she says she's looking for someone to stop her I kind of envision that your sassy assistant took over Markridge in, in Jennifer's place. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I do wonder about Markridge, um, but I'd actually like to know about that. We should, like, now that you bring it up again, I'm going to speak to Terry about it and see what was in his <laughs> mind of of what's happened to that. <laughs> Time to hit social media, yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm, well, mm-hmm. It's been well established um, that Barbara Sokova is jealous of your role as Jennifer Goines. She'd love to play that oh, role. <laughs> really? I didn't, I didn't even know that. That's yes, indeed. Really? Showed up in a couple of interviews. I'm jealous of Barbara as a person. Like, she's the coolest woman in the world. I just, yeah, I don't know how to explain it <laughs> other than that. She's so amazing. But my question for you then would be what character on the show or what type of character represented perhaps on the show would you like to take on as an actor if you could 
Oh, gosh. I mean, it's hard because uh, I love Jennifer more than anything. But let me think. I wouldn't want to take Jones for sure because I can't do that kind of dialogue. I cannot. <laughs> like science stuff, I, I just can't even remember it. Um, the thing is, like, God, Cassie, I love Cassie, but because of the way Amanda Shule plays her. And so if I'd want to take over Cassie, I, I would want to take over the way Amanda does it, which then there's no point in taking it over, right? <laughs> yeah, um, right. So, God. Well, would you like to play a leading lady or a, or a badass like Deacon or something? No, but that's what I love about Amanda. Like, it's not that it's, it's not that she doesn't play a leading She doesn't play the typical leading lady. She plays... Cassie as a full rounded human being with like such, but it's also in the writing, like Terry Metallis and his whole writing team. Um, the women on this show are written so well, like so complex. And I guess, you know, I would, I would actually like to take over Jones, but I just wish, I just know myself that I, I couldn't do it as well as she does, <laughs> but um, but maybe maybe in a few years take over Jones, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, <laughs> uh, since you're in this role as a primary, and as we learn more about primaries, we got to meet another person, kind of like Jennifer. His name was Tommy, played by another time traveler, Eric Nudson from Continuum. <laughs> mm. Did he uh, come to you for pointers on, you know, monkey artistry or other primary behavior? <laughs> No, no, I never actually got, and I wanted to, I never got to um, meet the actor who was playing that part. Um, no, nobody came to me for pointers, so I look forward to, to seeing, I think primary, it's all on the page, really. I mean, Terry keeps it all, everybody can have their own kind of thing. Um, it's just a matter of what's going on in your brain as a primary, so I think the personalities can all vary and be different. And as long as you're thinking in that manner of having all these timelines, I'm sure everybody will, there'll be a connective tissue from that. But I, I actually haven't seen that episode, so I don't know how he does it. I look forward to judging it harshly. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. He does you proud. So, um, <laughs> We're looking forward to seeing more of 12 Monkeys. We've got plenty of season left. But thank you so much for joining me today and talking to me about Jennifer Goines. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much for all your interest in the show and stuff. It's great. All right. And I like how she mentioned there at the end, Dave, she hadn't quite seen Eric Knudsen play a primary yet, but she was looking forward to judging it harshly. <laughs> <laughs> nice. But let's go ahead and move on to our discussion topic, which actually fits nicely also, just like the interview did in with 12 Monkeys, our discussion of revivals and reboots, because, of course, 12 Monkeys fits into this category. There seem to be a glut of these, Dave. I, I think it's because some are meeting success and they're playing on our nostalgia a little bit, do you think? Well, sure. Yeah. And one person who's doing a reboot, uh, who puts it very well, is Brian Fuller, who's the showrunner for the Star Trek reboot that's coming up on CBS 
uh, the streaming service that they're starting. And Brian Fuller said, I think that there is such a glut of reboots and reimaginings, but when they're good, they're good, and I don't care. I understand the sentimentality, and I understand, oh, it's familiar, but they're doing something different. And that's kind of the best of both worlds, because it's like a gateway drug into a whole new story. And on the whole, Dave, I have to agree with Mr. Fuller, because a lot of the reboots I've enjoyed with very few exceptions. No, I I agree as well. Uh, I guess some people might argue that it's really not fair to call (laughs) the Star Trek a reboot. Uh, You know, the Star Trek franchise has been going strong. That's true. uh, (laughs) Since Next Generation came back. Uh, Do we know who the captain is going to be? This isn't going to be Kirk, is it? No, no, it's actually, I believe uh, the time frame is going to be in between the original series and Star Trek The Next Generation. Oh, nice. Somewhere in the middle. (laughs) Cool. Well, you know, one of the things I was thinking, is it fair to say that Ronald D. Moore's reimagining of Battlestar Galactica is ground zero? I think that's very fair to say that. And it really, I think, showed everybody what's possible with the right creative minds. And one of the things I love about his approach was the fact that he shifted Starbuck from a male to a female, not unlike what you mentioned occurs in 12 Monkeys from the movie to the TV show. That's right. And I think for a lot of genre fans, Katie Sackhoff's Kara Thrace can even be considered somewhat iconic now. Yeah, it's almost like we forget the original now. I think that's happening a little bit with Jennifer Goins as well. Well, the other cool thing was the original Starbuck, who was a male, became a completely different character in their reimagining. Oh, and I think that's a key ingredient that we should bring up. Revivals and reboots. Get some original cast member to come back. And in fact, Madeline Stowe, the original Dr. Catherine Rayleigh from the movie, is going to be appearing in season two of 12 Monkeys as well. So everyone's doing it. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's not a reboot or a reimagining, but that's what Supergirl's doing, right? They've got various incarnations of previous actors and actresses in, in the show. All right, well, we got a long list of revivals. Uh, yeah, and we'll stop at a couple along the way. We won't. Yeah, most of all which of we're not going to watch. I, <laughs> yeah. I, don't, I don't think either of us is going to watch Gilmore Girls or Fuller House on Netflix. <laughs> exactly. My wife and daughter were big fans of Gilmore Girls, so that might make a little bit of a visit. But yeah, Fuller House, nah. Uh, Heroes Reborn, I had no interest. Yeah, that was one of the few on our list that has already happened and has already died. <laughs> right. And now, I think to be fair, and I think more importantly to to bring it up, is that I think that was a byproduct of fan support, social media, right? The, the clamoring to bring the show back. Yes. And, and we should make that distinction. These first few that we mentioned are revivals, not reboots. So revival would be defined as a show that has already been on TV. And is now returning to TV. It's not a reboot of a movie. Right. Now, that was on Fox. Also on Fox was The X-Files. It came back for six episodes in uh, January, and hopefully it'll be back again. I think everybody was extremely pleased with how that went. But Prison Break is another show that certainly a lot of people whose opinions I respect have told me it's great. I never have seen it, but apparently that's coming back on Fox. Right. With Wentworth Miller and basically a lot of the original cast are appearing on all the ones that we mentioned so far. Uh, Not all of them. I mean, like Heroes Reborn didn't have everyone, but it did have a lot of the key players. And so that's another key element of the revival. Ash versus the Evil Dead on Stars. 
you got to have Bruce Campbell in there, right? And Twin Peaks keeps announcing how many characters are coming back from the original Twin Peaks as they re-air on Showtime. Uh, hold on. I'm still flashing back to when Wayne made me watch Evil Dead for our <laughs> podcast. Ugh. All right. Anyway, <laughs> hey, it, it, you know, look, I know a lot of people love that. So, and that met with some success. On it, Stars it did. As well. It did. MacGyver, at least in movie form. Yeah, it's coming to TV and movie. Oh, right, right, right. CBS. They're doing a Lionsgate movie of MacGyver, and they're doing a TV reboot. So that'll be interesting to see. I think they're doing a young MacGyver. I'm not exactly sure. Don't quote me on that one. But one reboot that revival i should say that's coming because of the success of a earlier revival is 24 legacy which builds on the success of 24 live another day which in turn built on the success of 24 <laughs> yeah i don't think i'll be watching this one either i loved the original but it just got to be same old same old for me jack bowers one of my favorite characters but by season four it was just nothing new it was just a different terrorist, different, you know, weapon delivery, and I don't know. Well, if you think about it, all the ones that we mentioned, with the possible exception of Prison Break, which was not that far gone, all of them had a certain amount of time passed before the revival happened. So 24, I think, maybe was just trying to build a franchise a la Star Trek rather than reviving because it just hadn't been that long <laughs> since Jack Bauer left the airwaves. But let's go ahead and talk about reboots. These are TV shows that build on the success of films or miniseries. And 12 Monkeys is, of course, a great example. But some of these are very successful, too. I think the only exception that I want to bring up right at the beginning, Minority Report. And again, one of my favorite movies. I love Philip K. Dick. The TV show, which I reviewed for Den of Geek, was just awful. And thankfully, it got canceled. <laughs> All right. Now, what about Limitless? Well, I've heard good things. I have not seen that. Have you? No, I haven't. Mm -mm. But I have heard that, that it does have some good points to it. So I think that can be considered a success, at least from us not hearing bad things about it. <laughs> but you know which one I love, Dave, and my wife loves it as well? Fargo. That show has just built on the Coen Brothers legacy and just made its own identity separate from the movies, but really stayed true to the spirit of the original. I love that show. Okay. I mean, I've seen the movie several times. Love it. I haven't seen the show yet, but yeah, that one's airing on FX and I think it's been renewed for a season three. So that definitely has proven itself. All right. Well, we mentioned Star Trek, obviously. Now the interesting thing there is it's going to be on CBS access. So you're going to have to pony up some money to see it, right? Yeah. And I'm wondering if this is the, pattern that's going to emerge as streaming services take on traditional cable because th there are some including uh, one of our bosses here at den of geek chris longo definitely believes that we will see the death knell for cable tv at some point during our lives because of things like this wow also on cbs rush hour i don't even know what that is <laughs> yeah that was a buddy cop type of film um with jackie chan and i'm forgetting the other guy's name but <laughs> Uh, yeah, I'm not so sure about that one. That's not necessarily in our wheelhouse, but I did watch Xena warrior princess. That one's being rebooted and that doesn't count as revival, even though Xena is a TV show, not a movie. And that's because they're bringing in a whole new cast and that's been very controversial for some. I will definitely be checking it out because I did enjoy Lucy Lawless's original, but 
definitely one that's kind of up in the air as to whether or not it will meet success. Right. And that's a, a question I think fans have to ask. If you want your show rebooted, do you have to have the original cast, even though they might be 10, 15 years older? Yeah. <laughs> or are you willing to have new actors play the same characters? Exactly. Which not all of these are. Some of these made up their own characters, including Fargo, where they just use the same environment and the same spirit. But that's actually what I'm wondering about Taken, which is obviously based on the Liam Neeson movie property. I'm not sure too many details about this one, but I do think it's going to be inspired by the movie, but not necessarily keeping the same characters. Could be wrong, but I'm not sure. Uh, A movie that I loved, Heather's, I think it was like 1987, maybe. Really? That far back? Yeah. Yeah, I love that one too. (laughs) So don't think I'll be watching it on TV, but still. (laughs) And then lastly, Lethal Weapon on Fox. Uh, You know, they are what they are. I'm not a big fan, but obviously a lot of people are. And when you get into Buddy Cop, that becomes less of a movie inspired than it is a formulaic thing that's already on television. So definitely something that people could criticize the phenomenon of revivals and reboots. I think for you and I, it definitely has its appeal, but people say it's killing the creative process, not inventing new properties and whether or not Hollywood is out of good ideas. So they could just keep pulling back from the past. Well, they just should listen to social media and see what the fans want. <laughs> I'm sorry. Did that oh, sound yeah. a future topic on sci-fi? Yes. But yeah, that's uh, definitely something that we will keep an eye on. I, I, Maybe we'll show up as future topics here on Sci-Fi Fidelity. But that's going to be it for this edition. We hope you enjoyed our discussion this month. You can keep it going all month long by following us on social media. We're on Facebook and Twitter as Sci-Fi Fidelity. And we'll be back in June to discuss Wayward Pines and a to-be-determined show. We're still discussing it. Yeah, but in the meantime, be sure to rate and review this podcast wherever you access it. We're on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn. Plus, we do take suggestions for future discussion topics. Just email sci-fi-fidelity at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next month. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. 